Our scripture reading today is from John 20, 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus made many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miriam. So if you've been with us, you know that we uh, have been doing a series during Eastertide, which was a new word for me that I learned a couple weeks ago, uh, where we're looking at what the resurrected Jesus did with people, the encounters that he had uh, with his followers, with other people, and, and what that means for us today. And um, if you were with us last week, we saw that what Jesus does, with part of his resurrection ministry uh, to his people was he... He meets people in their paralysis, when they are paralyzed by fear and by uh, discomfort and by anxiety, and he gives us peace and purpose and a mission. Well, the main character of our passage missed that meeting last week. Uh, Downing Thomas, as he's famously called, was not present uh, in the passage that we looked at last week, where Jesus shows up and reveals himself to people. And as I was thinking about this... it's really unfair that we still call him Doubting Thomas because by the end of the passage that Miriam just read, like, he believes, you know? It's like, it's really not fair. It's like the least gospel thing ever that we still, like, call him by his mistake, you know? It's like, uh, if you know Rahab from Joshua 2, everywhere in Scripture that she's referred to, it's always Rahab the prostitute. And you got to think she was probably like, okay, they get it. You know, like, you can drop the moniker, like, I've moved on, uh, you know? And so... Thank you for laughing. Uh, but Thomas, he missed the meeting last week. And so, and it's funny, a lot of people don't know why. It's interesting. It's, there's not really a good reason why Thomas wasn't present with the other disciples in the passage that we looked at last week. And, I mean, it's an argument from silence, and you could speculate about it. But, I mean, just think, people handle tragedy differently. Right, Some people, uh, when they lose someone that they love, they want to surround themselves with other people uh, who know them and, and who knew that person, and they want to remember and they want to reminisce. And some people need to run away, and they need to retreat, and they need silence, and they need separation to really deal with their grief. And maybe Thomas is that latter kind of guy. Um, and that's a lot of us right now. There's still a lot of tragedy and loss and sorrow in the world, and it feels like I just kind of want to run away and retreat and, and be alone uh, with my grief. But how does the resurrected Christ, how does a resurrected Jesus meet Thomas in the midst of his doubts and his struggles and his, and his weak faith and, and his attempts to believe, right? And how does he meet us in our weak faith and our struggles to believe in him? Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll look at this passage more closely. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, please give us the grace uh, to, 
to see beautiful things in your word, God, that we would lead change, that your Holy Spirit um, would just supernaturally speak to us through your word. Uh, God, we need your help to understand it and to live it and to apply it to our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I just want to think about this passage in, in three quick ways. The source of doubt, the response to doubt, and then the end of doubt. So what's the source of doubt? What's Christ's response to doubt? And then what's the end of doubt? And so the first source of doubt in this passage, if you think about it, is Thomas. Right? Like Thomas is the guy who's pumping all the doubt into our passage. And if you look at verse 24, like Miriam read, it says that he was one of the twelve. And if you know what that means, it means that he was, a, he was one of Christ's disciples, right? He was one of the 12 closest friends that Jesus had in his earthly ministry. He was a disciple. He was an apostle. He was one of the 12, a.k.a. he's not like your freshman year religion 101 professor, right? He's not like, some, he's not like a Pharisee or, or a Roman counselor who, who would have had like a lot of vested interest in not believing in Jesus, right? He was super close to Jesus, super close to Christ. He knew him well. He saw miracles performed. Scripture even says that he performed miracles on his own in the name of Jesus. And he still doubts. Right? He still doubts. No one is immune to this, essentially. right? This can happen to anyone. And so I just love that God, when he wrote the story for his earthly life, he chose Thomas to be a disciple knowing full well uh, that he was going to struggle to really believe and to really trust in the resurrection. And it shows that God doesn't just call people who are like perfectly capable of healthy faith, right? He doesn't just call people who can, who can easily believe and put all their faith and trust in him, right? He calls weak people, people who need help, people who need extra help to believe in him. And so this also means that you can, you can be following Jesus for a really long time, and you can see him do amazing things in your life and in other people's lives and still struggle to really believe him, to really take him at his word and to really trust him and believe that, that it's all true. And so no one's really immune necessarily from going through uh, these seasons of doubt, these seasons of struggle and of questioning. And so the first source of doubt in the passage is Thomas, right? An apostle, a disciple. Uh, someone you'd be tempted to think is immune to doubt. And that's just, that's really good news, right? That some, someone who was super close to Jesus in his earthly life still struggled to believe the good news of the gospel. It's good, good news for people like us, right? But what was the source of Thomas's doubt, right? What was the source of Thomas's doubt specifically? Uh, and the best answer we have is we don't know. We really don't know. Uh, and I love that. It, it's kind of like this blank check. It's like, look, fill in the blank. Like, if you're struggling... Uh, to believe in Christ because of emotional reasons or intellectual reasons. We really don't know exactly why Thomas was struggling to believe in the resurrection. But we can speculate, and speculate they have. Uh, the commentators think that, that there's tons of reasons. Maybe uh, Thomas, because he wasn't at the first gathering of the disciples when he was retreating, maybe he is kind of shielding himself. He's saying, look, I just watched my Lord and my Savior die and all of my hopes and dreams and longings die with him. And I'm just not in a place right now where I can even begin to fathom that maybe that's all going to become untrue. And that that can all work out somehow. Um, maybe he just can't let himself be hopeful again, right? It's too good to be true. Maybe he's too emotionally devastated by the death of Jesus um, to entertain that kind of hope again. Or, on the other hand, maybe it's more of the scientific, kind of materialistic 
uh, side of things, where he's like, look, I just need, I need solid, concrete proof, right? Because his request is super specific, and it's super tangible. He's like, I, I, I got to experience him. I, I need to see it. I need to touch it. I need to encounter it. And so I've read commentators you know, speculate about all these things, but I mean, if you just look at the Bible, if you look at the passage itself, it just doesn't explicitly tell you why Thomas struggled. And I love that because we all have different reasons for why we struggle to believe. Um, I mean, maybe, it's, maybe your story's just filled with so much pain that you're like, I can't entertain the thought of there being a God, and if he is there, I don't really like him because, he, because of how he wrote my story. Right? Or maybe you, you just have this worldview where you're like, that doesn't fit. Someone coming back to life like that, ascending into heaven, just doesn't fit. I can't do that. Right? We, we, we all come uh, from different places. Right? Maybe, maybe you're kind of like Thomas might have been with a, a tender heart and you're afraid of disappointment. You're like, what if I put all of my faith and hope and trust in this? And what if it doesn't come through for me? Right? What if this doesn't satisfy me like all these people in, talking in front of me tell me it's supposed to satisfy me? What if it doesn't come through for me? What if I'm still left disappointed and empty? What if this fails me? And so what is it for you? What is it for me, right? What are the, what are the things that keep us from really putting and, and, and banking our entire existence on Jesus and on the resurrection? So I just love that this encounter with the resurrected Christ, right? God, in his infinite wisdom, using the apostles by his Holy Spirit, he, he wrote this story down so that people like us could know what Jesus is like when we struggle to believe, when we have big questions, big doubts, and big hang-ups. And so Jesus and Thomas only have this one interaction at this one point in history, and yet you and I and millions of other people throughout the centuries have gotten to read it over and over and over again so that we can have the same kind of encounter with Jesus. So quickly, that's just the source of doubt, right? Thomas is the doubter, and, and we don't really know why he's doubting. And that's kind of good news, because it means we can all put ourselves in his shoes. So what's the response to doubt, right? How, how does Jesus, resurrected Jesus, encountering Thomas in the midst of these doubts and questions, what's he like? How, how does he move towards Thomas? Well, the first thing I want you to see in verse 26, it says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came. That's it. Jesus went after him. Jesus pursued Thomas. He, he, he sought him out in the midst of this season of, of doubt and of questioning, right? Jesus comes after him. And so I don't want to, like, camp out on this verse for, like, too long. Uh, but if, if you notice, like, it says that he, he entered in this locked room, right? This is a locked, closed room. Somehow Jesus just appears. Um, but I just think this is so cool that, like, it means that somehow, some way, Jesus' resurrected body, Jesus' heavenly body is in a way more real than the world around him. That kind of like the way a stone is heavier and more weighty than water and can just pass right through water, Jesus can just seemingly pass right through material. He's saying, I am more real than this. This actually bends to my will. Maybe you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's incredible novel, uh, The Great Divorce, uh, which is his kind of take on what heaven and hell might be like. And he, you know, he, from the get-go, he's like, look, this is just a novel. I'm not trying to make any like, theological claim about heaven and hell. But, but in this book, it's really interesting. These people in hell can take a bus to heaven. They can stay as long as they want. They could choose not to go back. But what happens is you notice that hell is this world where nothing is really real. 
Like nothing is really substantial. Uh, like it rains all the time and the rain's constantly like kind of getting into the house somehow. It's coming through the ceiling. It's coming through the walls. You can almost see through everything. It's just not, it's not super robust. And then when they show up to heaven, uh, these people, they can't even touch the grass. It, it's too real. It's too sharp. They can't even stand on it because they're like, I'm, I'm going to hurt myself. And someone goes over and they, they reach to pick up an apple and it's like a boulder. It just weighs like, you know, 200 pounds. And what you see is like in heaven, in glory, everything's just more real than it is here. That it's not less real, it's actually, it's actually more real. And so that's what we see, that the resurrected body of Jesus, it, like a stone through water, can just kind of pass through material. Um, and it's just kind of awesome. Uh, and so again, don't want to make that like the main point, but I think it's, I think it's really important to, to point out. But maybe even more important to point out, is that locked doors and closed rooms don't keep Jesus away, right? They can't keep him from getting to his people when they need him, right? When they're hurting, when they're confused, when they're wounded, people who need help to believe, locked doors and closed rooms don't keep Jesus out. And so the first response that Jesus has to Thomas's doubts is that he comes after him. He goes to him, right? But notice then what Jesus doesn't do once he gets there, right? He, he doesn't shame him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? Like, out of all of the people who should get this and understand this and believe this, how are you not one of them, right? I, I told you this so many times, and you never listened, you never understood me. He doesn't say any of that, right? Jesus shows up, and he's just so tender with him, right? And if anyone had the right to scold people, it would have been Jesus and his disciples after they abandoned him at the crucifixion. And look, like, if you look in verse 25, Thomas says, unless I see his hands, unless I place my finger in the mark of the nails, hand in the side, he says, I will never believe. He's resolute. He's not like neutral. He's not like hopeful and like open to the idea. I mean, he, he, he's really cutting himself off. And so it'd be easy to think that Jesus would, would, I don't know, have harsher words for him, but he doesn't. He, he comes in and he speaks a good word. He speaks a benediction. He says, peace. And if we're being honest, the requests that Thomas are making are like, super aggressive, like, <laughs> that's like a really big ask, you know, and like, people like us, like, I don't ask God stuff like that, because I'm born in the South, right, like, where politeness is like the highest good, like, me and Meredith just moved into our house on Felix Avenue, on the corner of Felix and Tanglewood, we would love for y'all to stop by anytime unannounced, uh, but the day we moved in, Saturday, that night, we're sitting on the porch, sweating, like, just after a long day, and this random guy walks up and, like, opens the gate, you know, and, like, walks into, you know, our yard and sits on the porch and just starts talking to us. And I'm like, this is why we moved here. And, um, and he just stayed there for, like, two hours because we're too polite to say anything. We're just like, uh-huh. We would still be there had he not left on his own. I'm convinced. And so we just, we don't ask God questions like this. This is just, so, it's so aggressive. It's so bold. It's not polite. It's coming from, like, a really raw, wounded heart. And in the face of this super bold request, after he addresses the whole room, Jesus turns to Thomas and he says, put your finger here. He says, look at my hands. Give me your hand. Let me put him in my side. He just meets him exactly where he was. He just gives him exactly what he needed. And uh, look, this, <laughs> this might be a no-brainer for you, but as I was preparing for this, I was just kind of struck by how, like, the fact that Thomas doubted the resurrection didn't make it less true, right? The fact that Thomas doubted the resurrection and had weak faith and was struggling to believe in it, it didn't make it less true. 
Jesus was still fully resurrected, right? And so look, think about it this way, right? Imagine two people who are trying to make their way across like a big frozen lake. I've never done this because of where we live, but and, and just imagine the first guy, and, and he's like terrified, out of his mind. I don't know why he's got to cross, but he's got to. And I mean, he is just trepidatious, like nervously putting you know, his hands out, testing every little spot, because he is just like, he has no idea if this is going to hold him up, but he's got to get to the other side. And then imagine uh, the guy right after him is, is driving an F-250, just you know, going 60 miles an hour, you know, with, I guess, chains on the wheels probably. But he's just flooring it on this frozen lake, and the guy kind of looks up, and he's like, well, I guess this thing can hold me up after all. And I say all that to say that, like, no matter how weak the first guy's faith was in the frozen lake to hold him up, it was always going to hold him up. It was never going to let him go. And no matter how strong the second guy's faith was in that lake, it was always going to hold him up. It was never going to let him go. And so Jesus came to save people with weak faith, people who doubt, people who have questions, people who struggle to believe, right? And so Thomas's doubt, Thomas's struggle to believe in the resurrection, it didn't change the validity of it. It didn't change the legitimacy of it. And so we see from this passage that weak faith in a strong Savior is way better than really strong faith in a weak Savior, right? I, I can have all the faith in the world that I still have time uh, to become a professional basketball player. And no matter how strong my faith is in that, it's not going to happen, right? So it's better to have weak faith in a strong object. And so your weak faith, my weak faith, it doesn't change the legitimacy of Christ's resurrection. It can't render the things that you believe untrue just because you struggle to believe them. And so look at verse 27 with me. It says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Like we said, Jesus meets Thomas exactly where he is. He shows up in the exact way he was needed. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't shame him. He gives compassion on him. He reveals himself to him. But if you look closely, Thomas never actually puts his hand in Christ's side. Right? He never actually touches the wounds in Jesus' hands. And, and Tim Keller points this out. It's almost that the offer of being able to do so was enough. Uh, he quotes a guy named Leon Morris who said, The simple offer of the ability to put his hands in the side of Jesus was enough because it showed him that Christ was with him eight days earlier when he made the same request. And that that was more powerful to him than experiencing the evidence, than getting to touch and feel him. It was that Jesus was there with me eight days ago when I asked him to do this, when I said this is the only way I'd believe, and he knew. And he did it, and he showed up. The resurrected Christ sought him out and chased him down and met him exactly where he needed to be. And after coming to Thomas, he says, he says stop disbelieving and believe. And it's kind of harsh, right? Like if you know anybody who's ever struggled with substance abuse or with alcoholism or with addiction, you know that one of the most unhelpful things you can say to someone is just stop. Just stop doing that and start doing something else, right? It's usually not helpful. It usually hurts the other person. And yet Jesus, who knows everything <laughs> and knows us perfectly, never gets anything wrong, he tells Thomas, Look, stop disbelieving and start believing. Um, and it's kind of awesome because you see that Jesus is gentle 
right? He's compassionate. He doesn't scold. He doesn't shame. He meets him where he is. And yet he's firm. He says, look, you need to look at me and you need to believe. So Jesus is gentle and yet he's firm. So, okay, if that's Jesus' response to Thomas in his doubts, and as I want to argue, his response to us in our doubts, now what, right? What, how, does that, how does that fix me? I've I got to go back to work tomorrow. You know, I have, to, I have to exist as a human being in America in 2022. Like, I need help. How does, this, how does this affect my life? How does this change my life? Well, let's look at the end of doubt, right? And, and when I say the end of doubt, I mean both things. I mean, like, how does our doubt cease? Like, how does it stop? But then also, like, what's the end of our doubt? What's the purpose for it, right? What's the end goal of doubt? And so look at verse 28, right? This is, you know, after, after Jesus reveals himself to him, he said, Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That's worship. Right? He's, he's confessing and he's worshiping Jesus in that moment. He's saying, you are my Lord, you are my God. And then the reason John wrote that is so that people like us who weren't there could say the exact same thing. So that we could look at this encounter, this experience that Thomas had with Jesus, and so that we could feel the same way that Thomas did. That's, that's the end of our doubt, right? Um, not only the, the ceasing of it, but also the purpose for it. And it's worship. It's worship. So doubt is not an end in and of itself. That's what I'm trying to say. It, doubt's not a place where you move in and camp out and live, right? It, it, it's supposed to take you somewhere else. So like, think about it. If your faith cannot endure and cannot remain solid after real, long, hard looks at it, then why would you still believe it? Right? Why would you still believe it? Uh, the, the last quote uh, in your bulletin on page one at the bottom by Oz Guinness, I love this. He says, if our faith, if Christianity is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, then we were believing what was clearly not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith's grown stronger. It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. And so look, let your questions, let your struggles, let your doubts, let, let the struggle of trying to put your faith in Jesus, let it, let it drive you to examine Christianity because it holds up. We need to trust that God is big enough and strong enough to handle our questions, Right? He can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your struggles, right? And so Thomas's confession right here in verse 28, commentators say that that's like the climax of the gospel of John. That's like the high water mark because this confession, it's so spot on. What Thomas says about Jesus is like the first time, finally, in the whole gospel where someone gets it right. Where he says, not only are you my Lord and my master, you're God. You are my God. And the guy famous for doubting becomes the, the biggest believer in Jesus. <laughs> the guy who's famous for doubting uh, has the strongest, most robust confession of who Jesus is. It's, the, it's like the greatest Cinderella story of all time. You know, It was a 2-1 series for Thomas, but there's still hope. Um, that may be too soon to, to bring up at this point in time. But look, one, one commentator said it this way. He said, Thomas might have been slower than his fellow disciples to come to faith in the risen Christ. But when he did, his faith was expressed in a language that went beyond any that they had ever used. And so you see how doubt is not a place that you linger in. It's a place that's supposed to take you to worship. It's a place that's supposed to make your faith stronger. And 
I mean, this is just the gospel. The, the, the disciple who is the slowest to believe confesses his faith with the strongest words up to this point in the New Testament. And so John's gospel is bookended with this claim that Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh. God with skin on, Emmanuel, God with us, right? So what about us? Right? That's nice for Thomas. I didn't get that. The resurrected Christ is not breaking into my house and coming to hang out with me and show me his wounds, right? I love asking kids in our youth ministry, uh, what would have to happen for you to never doubt again, right? Like, what's an experience that you could have that would take away every question, remove all doubt, you know, that God's real, he loves you, Jesus is his son, that everything we believe is true, what would it take? Uh, and, and the answers are awesome. They're exactly what you'd expect. Well, I, I'd love to hear his audible voice. Uh, I'd love to have some dreams. I'd love to be able to, like, travel back in time and, like, witness it with my own eyes. I'd love it if he, like, showed up, you know, and I could, and I could see all this stuff. And yet here we have a guy who did all that and who had all that, and he still struggled, right? He still struggled. So what's it going to take, right? What's it going to take uh, for us, uh, for our doubt to actually end, right? We think we're at a disadvantage, we think that compared to the disciples, compared to the apostles, all these people in the first century, that like we're at a disadvantage. I can't see them. And yet, verse 29 explodes that way of thinking. It just totally blows it up. Jesus himself, in verse 29, if you read it, it says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Meaning, assuming, people are not going to see this and they're still going to believe in me. Right? And if you keep reading in verses 30 through 31, it says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so look, John says, and thus God says through John, that you may not have experienced what Thomas did in the flesh, in person, but you can read about it, right? You can read about what happened to him. And in a way, it's almost better because that only happened to Thomas once. And even John the Baptist at the end of his life, who had witnessed so many things, at the end of his life, he's like, are you sure you're the Christ? Are you sure you're the Messiah? Even things he had seen, he started later in life to doubt. We have a written account that you can come back to over and over and over again. Right? Like when you need to hear this, when you, when, you, when you need to hear this, when you want to hear this, you can come back to it over and over and again. And so what do we do with our doubts? Like what, do we, what do we do with our doubts and our questions and our struggle to believe? Right? What's, what's their end? What's their purpose? Well, I want to suggest uh, that our doubts are to be like a cattle dog or like a sheep dog. Uh, I grew up in rural North Alabama, and my grandfather had this little... Um, Blue Heeler, that's a dog, right? And uh, her name was Dixie, and she was, like, super tiny, but she was the most aggressive creature on the planet. Like, he had her in, like, double fences. Like, we as kids couldn't get close to her because she was just, like, so wildly aggressive. But I used to watch, and what he would do is he would, he would take Dixie, and she'd get in the back of the truck, and he would go out, and he'd have to move this massive group of cows from one area to another. And he would just send her out into the, in, into the field, and she started literally just, like, biting at their feet and moving this massive herd of cattle in the direction that they needed to go. It was kind of amazing as a kid to watch that. Um, and that's what I think our, our doubts and our questions and our struggles need to be like for us. They need to be like a, like a sheepdog or like a cattle dog that are just biting at our heels, constantly driving us back to the Bible, right? Because that's where Jesus is. 
That's where he promises to meet with you. That's where he promises to encounter you the same way he did Thomas, right? Look, we need the word in the midst of our doubts. You, you have got to let God talk to you in the midst of your doubts and your questions and your struggles. Look, I remember when me and Meredith were just dating, and I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee, Tennessee, and she was in Tuscaloosa, and there would just be those days where, like, she wouldn't respond to a text message for, like, five or six hours, and you're just, your mind starts, like, immediately going to super dark places. You're just like, is she, is this over? Like, is she, is she just, like, scared to drop the hammer on me? Like, did she figure something out about my past that would rightly make her think I don't need to marry this guy? Like, what, what happened, Right? And I would, just, I would just freak out slowly throughout the day, and I would unwind. And then at, like, the end of the day, and if you know Meredith, this is funny because she's just, like, not attached to her phone at all. And she would just call me like nothing had ever happened. And I'm like, I had an existential meltdown over here for the last three hours. And you're just like, oh, sorry, like, I left my phone at home, no big deal. But, but after, like, two minutes of talking to her, after two minutes of her talking to me, hearing, hearing her voice, hearing the tone, I was like, I'm safe. <laughs> I made it another day, right? She'll do that again in, late, in, in the future, but I made it another day, and I could, I could relax, and I could, I could remember and be reminded that she was still there, right? that she was still with me. And so in the, in the midst of your doubts and in the midst of your questions and your struggles to believe, do you go to the place where he's promised to show up? Do you go to the Bible? I wish there was something cooler to tell you to do, but like that's, that's what Scripture says, right? Show up and, and let God talk to you in the midst of your doubts and your questions. Because the Bible claims to give you an experience of the resurrected Jesus, just like Thomas had, right? Happens by the Word. It happens by the Spirit. It's supernatural. I tell our kids that all the time. Your Bible is supernatural. That book is more than just words on a page. And so look. We're talking about John, right? And, and the whole Gospel of John is bookended by this fact that Jesus Christ is God become man. Right? John 1 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which means that when you go to the Word, you can encounter Jesus in the flesh, so to speak, that he really does show up and meet you there in a special way. And so look, like this encounter that Thomas had with the resurrected Jesus, Christ is alive right now. He, he's near you. He's with you. He knows your doubts and he knows your questions and he wants to show up and he wants to meet you in them. And he's chasing you down and he is relentless because he wants you to encounter him. So let's take up and read. Let's pray. God, you're our father and we know that you're good and we can look, um, we can look at Jesus's wounds uh, in his hands and his side and know that you love us, but in day-to-day life, it's really hard to believe that and to act like that's true and to live as if that's true. And yet you meet us. You meet us in our doubts and you meet us in our struggles and you're tender and you're compassionate with us. But God, you also tell us to believe. So would we um, cry out with the prayer that we find in your gospels, Lord, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you help us to believe you? Would you help us to take you at your word and to bring our doubts and our struggles and our questions to you? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's.